You know, we associate Easter with chocolate sometimes, don't we? I was um, reading on the news recently that there's a three-ton chocolate Easter bunny that was made in South Africa, I think, uh, that fed a whole township. That's a serious Easter egg. I don't know how many you've got uh, hidden away at home uh, you're going to be enjoying, but for many of us, Easter just is about chocolate and lots of it. It's actually a bit of a conspiracy, I think, isn't it? You just about manage to lose the, uh, you know, the half a stone that you put on at Christmas, and then Easter arrives, and uh, what to do? It's just uh, you know, chocolate all over again. Maybe you think of gardening, and if the weather holds out, I'm sure many of us will be out in the garden this weekend. Maybe DIY, you're going to make the most of those you know, um, inevitable discounts at the DIY superstore and get some work done that you've been putting off for a while. All sorts of things we associate with the Easter weekend, but I want to uh, just help us afresh understand that actually what makes Easter Easter is the resurrection of Jesus and the significance of that historical event in our lives even today in modern 21st century Britain. We are celebrating something that happened a long time ago and yet the significance and the relevance of it is just as real and powerful today as it has been through every generation after the event itself. So we're going to look at some issues to do with the resurrection. I want to look at some facts, some objections and some implications with you this morning. We're going to look at what happened We're going to look at what the sceptics might say, and we're going to look at what it really means to us personally, because the event itself has got a relevance, I believe, for every one of us. That's certainly our story. It's been the story of those who have um, come and shared something of what happened to them as they became Christians, and uh, we're going to look at that together. I don't know what the resurrection means to you. It may mean absolutely nothing to you, and you may consider that it has absolutely no significance whatsoever in your life. It may be uh, that you consider it a kind of myth, a story uh, that's, you know, nice, it's been passed on through history. It may be that um, you're a little curious about it, and even this morning your curiosity is a bit stirred and you're wondering, you know, what, 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 what really is it about? How can it have any real meaning to an individual today? Uh, It may be that you're a Christian and actually the resurrection is something you celebrate and something you remember not just on this Easter weekend but throughout the year as uh, as you 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 live your Christian life. I want to um, read, to start with, a, a passage from the Bible and it's going to come up on the screen behind me. And it was written by a chap called Paul who was... Somebody was very religious, but he was not a Christian until he met with the resurrected Jesus. And Paul writes this. It's written about 50 years after the actual events of the resurrection. I'm going to read this and just make some comments as we look at this this morning. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of all who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
Now, if Christ, this is verse 12 onwards, is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Let's look at some facts here that Paul refers to and reminds uh, these Christians in Corinth about. Paul is talking about the resurrection as an historical event, a factual event that has been recorded by eyewitnesses in the first century and kept for us in what we call the New Testament. It may seem like a ridiculous assertion for me to be standing up here in 21st century Britain and referring to the resurrection as an historical event, to be referring it uh, in terms of being a fact, something that actually historically happened. You see, the reality is we live in a culture, don't we, in a society where if something isn't, um, you know, there's, if there's no scientific evidence for something, then it must be less than real, it must be spurious, it must be insubstantial. And most people assume that the resurrection falls into that category. They assume that it was maybe a myth, that somehow there was possibly some misunderstanding and misinterpretation of what happened during that weekend in Israel. Or perhaps that there's you know, something of a parable or a story and if we just you know, understand the spiritual truth behind the story of something that didn't really happen, then that's really the extent of what the Bible means by the resurrection and its, um, you know, its application in our lives. Well, the New Testament presents the resurrection as an historical event, as a fact. What I want to suggest and argue is that that is, in reality, what the resurrection is. And I want to encourage you this morning, if perhaps you've thought it's a myth or perhaps you've uh, assumed that there's a misunderstanding or it's just a nice story or a parable, just to consider afresh what the Bible teaches about the resurrection and its implication for you. Paul reminds the church in Corinth of certain facts. And there's a couple of things that I want to say about these facts to start with. First of all, he says that these were facts that were held to by a wide group of people. This wasn't just one or two religious fanatics who'd, you know, stirred up some crazy claim about their spiritual leader rising on the third day. No, these facts were held on to and accepted by a whole mass of contemporaries, many of whom had a physical eyewitness testimony of Jesus post-resurrection. Paul talks about the fact that these things were communicated by a whole group of people. He refers to our preaching. He says, we testified about God, that he raised Christ. And he's underlining the fact that this event 
was something that was totally accepted by a wide group of contemporaries of Jesus. Not only was that true, but the facts were observed by hundreds of eyewitnesses. And Paul refers to this here. He talks of how the event itself and what happened was passed on to him. He speaks of how Christ appeared to him as one, as he refers to himself, untimely born. He talks about Jesus appearing on a number of different occasions and on one occasion to more than 500 people simultaneously. He's talking about facts that were observed by hundreds of eyewitnesses. In fact, he says to the contemporaries that he's writing to, if you want to check this out, you can go and interview some of these eyewitnesses and they will underline and attest to what I'm saying, that they saw Jesus. So these are serious facts. This is serious evidence. If I were to say to you this morning um, that when I was at primary school or secondary school, I ran the 100 metres in 9.8 seconds, then there would be a very simple way of checking out whether what I'm claiming is, uh, would be true or not. Because, you know, most, if not all, of my contemporaries at sports days when I was at school can be phoned up, checked out, found out. They can, uh, you know, very quickly dismiss the fact that I ran the, the, the 100 metres. I didn't, by the way, run the 100 metres in 9.8 seconds. Nowhere near that. But if my great-great-grandson in 120 years' time, you know, claims that his great-great-grandfather ran the 100 metres in 9.8 seconds at, at school, then that's, a, that's harder to, you know, to, to check out and find out, isn't it? Well, Paul is talking about facts that could be verified by living eyewitnesses. These are serious facts. What are the facts then? Well, the facts, according to Paul, are very simple. Fact number one, he died. Jesus experienced authentic death. He was 100% dead. That was the result of the trauma of the execution of the cross, but also the horrible suffering that led up to the point of execution. If you've seen the film, The Passion of the Christ, um, you would have seen a very graphic and realistic portrayal of what would have happened on that Good Friday as Jesus was whipped by the Romans that was referred to as a halfway death. And in fact, many uh, criminals would not even have survived the trauma of the pre-execution whipping itself. But Jesus did. We know that he was so traumatized and exhausted, he was unable to carry the, the crossbeam of the cross to Golgotha. He was then hoisted up on the cross and executed. He died according to Paul. And the verdict of everyone who witnessed these events, including the Roman soldiers who were responsible for carrying out the execution of criminals week in, week out, was that Christ died. So fact number one, he died. Fact number two, according to Paul, he was buried. And in fact, the narrative of the Gospels give us lots of details here. Um, we heard some of it earlier as Viv read it out. You can go away and, and read it in the, the end of the Gospels. Jesus, having been confirmed as dead, was removed from the cross. One of his followers, a wealthy man, asked, the, asked, asked Pilate, the governor, to release the body, which he did. 
Uh, this man provided burial cloth and over two kilos of embalming spices. His dead body was wrapped in the cloth, packed with the spices, and he was laid inside a tomb which was secured by a large boulder which would itself have weighed over a, a ton and a half. The next days, the Pharisees request Pilate to give a detachment of soldiers in front of the tomb to ensure that no one attempts to steal the body and perpetrate a fraud. And so they seal the, the stone and they post a detachment of soldiers in front of the tomb. He was buried, fact number two. Fact number three, he rose on the third day. Again, there's plenty of detail in the, in the Gospel documents. At dawn on the third day, two women, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus, go to the tomb to continue their mourning process and continue the embalming of the body. And before they get there, an angel appears and rolls back the stone. And these two women, I think the guys were still sleeping in, or they were probably, you know, trembling in fear in a room somewhere in Jerusalem, are wondering how on earth the two of them are going to get, move this stone so they can get access to the body. And when they get there, they find the stones already removed. The soldiers freak out. They run to the authorities. They bribe the soldiers with a large sum of money to spread the rumor that the disciples have stolen the body. And Mary and Mary find an empty tomb. Run and tell the disciples. Peter and John sprint to the tomb. And there in the tomb are the discarded burial cloths and it's empty. And then Mary shortly afterwards comes back and a figure is there that she doesn't recognize at first, but it is the risen Lord Jesus. She returns to tell the disciples. So fact number three, he rose on the third day. Now, let me just go through a few objections. We don't have time extensively to go into this. If you're interested in this kind of thing, uh, let me encourage you to do something called the Alpha Course, which we are running here from May the 4th. Many churches in the UK run this. And it's a chance really to, you know, argue and deliberate and discuss and uh, get to the, the bare bones of what the Christian message is. But here are some very common objections. Number one, he wasn't really dead. The objection goes that actually, rather than dying on the cross, Jesus fell unconscious fell into some kind of coma and then in the cool of the tomb, some hours later, he revived, recovered, he unwrapped himself and he pushed back the boulder, which I said weighed over a ton and a half and in full view of the guards, he just escaped. Now it's fairly easy uh, to you know, conclude that that's not a strong argument. Jesus, for a start, could never have survived crucifixion. The Romans were very careful to eliminate that possibility. In fact, Roman law laid down the penalty of death on any soldier who bungled an execution. I referred earlier to the fact that criminals on crosses also could be brought to a quicker end by breaking their legs, which would have increased their, you know, their, their capacity to suffocate early. There's an interesting detail in John's Gospel, and John was probably the only eyewitness follower of Jesus at the point of death, where he says this. He says it was the day of preparation, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there because it was the Sabbath on the next day. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by order that their legs would be broken. 
Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also can believe. It's an interesting detail, but it just underlines for us the reality that Christ died. John tells us that Jesus was dead and to underline that fact, he describes how the soldier jammed a lance in between his ribcage into the heart and out from the heart flowed blood and water. Interestingly, medical people say that that refers to the fact that within the chamber of his heart his blood had somehow coagulated and there was a watery serum and a coagulated bloody mass that was released as the uh, spear was jammed into the chamber of his heart. This was a dead man. On top of that, of course, is the fact that he was tightly wound in burial cloths, making it impossible to to breathe. He was laid in a tomb with a ton and a half boulder over the face of that tomb. There was no resuscitation from a coma. This was a dead man. A second objection is that the body was somehow stolen by the disciples or the authorities. That may sound a little more plausible, but I think that when you consider their psychological state, the fact that they were in trembling and fear, the way the Bible presents the disciples, the eleven, in the moment of the crucifixion and as Jesus is buried, these were not a crack group of elite soldiers ready to somehow pull off some daring escapade and steal the body. These guys were fishermen whose lives were now at risk. They risked themselves being arrested as co-conspirators with this revolutionary Jesus. And their first thought was to hide away and find somewhere they could just lay low before they got out of the city and returned to their, you know, their area in the rural north. But apart from that, of course, historically we know that every single one of them was prepared to die, some of them in a horrible way. Peter was crucified upside down. Even though the sceptics say in the back of their minds they knew that actually they'd stolen the body. Now, that just does not add up. That these 11 men who really in the back of their minds knew that they'd stolen the body and hidden it somewhere would be willing to go through the pain of some horrible execution themselves. Objection three was that the body was removed by the authorities. That may seem plausible, But the reality is that six weeks after this, the whole city is in uproar and there's a real risk of revolution. The political authorities are, uh, you know, very, very nervous. They want to do anything they can to stamp out this new movement of Christianity. If they had themselves removed the body, there would be a very simple, immediate way of just dissipating the revolution that was going on in Jerusalem, they could have just pulled the body out, just like authorities in Iraq got Saddam Hussein and showed him through the world's media to all all the world. They could have taken the dead body from where they'd hidden it and immediately that revolution, that disturbance, that unrest 
would have disappeared and stability and political security would have returned. Why didn't they do that? Because there was no body. They hadn't stolen it. So there are some objections to the fact that Jesus rose physically from the dead. I want to finish just with some implications. You see, the message of the New Testament is that these events have a personal implication. They have an implication to all cultures and they have an implication to all generations. These events are not consigned to Middle Eastern first century history. They have a universal application. What is that application? First of all, Jesus is who he claimed to be. Romans says that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by his resurrection from the dead. If these facts are true, then this was no ordinary man. There was something extraordinary about the person, Jesus Christ. And that is exactly, of course, what Jesus claimed. Many people assume that Jesus wandered around teaching spiritual things and that somehow his disciples kind of got the wrong end of the stick and claimed that he was God. But that's not how the Bible presents the facts. The Bible records Jesus claiming to be God, saying things about himself that were extraordinary. Things like this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are extraordinary claims. That's the way Jesus spoke about himself. And the resurrection is the evidence that Jesus was not creating a delusion. He didn't deliberately deceive his followers. Neither was he mad or misunderstood, but he was in fact who he claimed to be. That's the story of everyone who's been baptised this morning. They've come to understand and believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. There may have been a time in their lives where they didn't believe that, but they've come to understand and put their confidence in that fact. Jesus is who he says he is. Another implication is that there is a now a free offer of forgiveness. Paul says here that if Christ has not been raised, our faith is useless and we are still guilty of our sins. And the logic, of course, is very clear. The fact of the resurrection guarantees forgiveness. You see, the Bible says that what happened on the cross in the death of Jesus wasn't just a nice example for us of how we should deny ourselves and sacrifice ourselves for our friends, that there was something substantial happening in the event of Jesus' death that has an implication for you and me. There was a transaction going on. Paul says, I delivered to you what was of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. It wasn't just a death, it was a death as a substitute for you and for me. And on the cross, Jesus took on himself the consequences of our living without reference to God 
so that we could know as a result of his death on the cross the free offer of forgiveness and a brand new life. There was a transaction. And the resurrection was the guarantee that that transaction was complete. If you move house, there is a day of completion, isn't there? And on that day, an amount of money, a large amount of money usually, leaves your account and you can phone your solicitor in the morning and that money has left your account, it's gone, but the transaction's not complete because you wait there, don't you, with your removal van and all your worldly goods in the lorry for a phone call from the other solicitor to confirm that yes, the funds have been received, the completion is over, you can now receive the keys. Well, on the cross, the price was paid for your life that you've lived without reference to God. The Bible calls that sin. In the resurrection, the completion happens and the free offer of forgiveness, the keys of forgiveness, if you like, are now available. Christ died so that we might receive forgiveness of our sins. Third implication is the possibility of personal relationship. Very simply, that's what's on offer as a result of knowing forgiveness. The, react, the, the response now to what Christ has done is we receive forgiveness, we now enter into a brand new life in relationship personally with God. We don't just follow a set of teachings or a code of living. We have a living relationship with a living Jesus because he's alive. You can't have that kind of relationship with any other religious leader because they didn't rise. That's the testimony and the story of everyone that's been baptized. Not that they're following their parents' religion or that they somehow come to understand how they should live now through Jesus' teachings, but that they know Christ personally for themselves. That's why we don't baptize very, very young infants, because they don't have that experience. A new offer of a relationship. And then finally, a brand new start. Steve mentioned earlier of how we identify in baptism with Christ's death and his resurrection. And the resurrection makes a brand new start possible. Becoming a Christian is not about becoming religious. It's not about just turning over a new leaf. It's about being, in Jesus' words, born again. Having a brand new beginning. The old life we die to. We're buried in baptism. The new life we receive, we rise up from the waters of baptism to experience and begin that new life that journey marked by a personal relationship with Jesus. So, let me end there. Hopefully I've given you some food for thought this morning. Maybe that you believe the resurrection is a myth. You've made certain assumptions. I want to encourage you to think again. I want to encourage you to um, chat to maybe family members who have been baptized today, have brought you here. Um, I want to encourage you as well as we are going to end shortly with a song. If you want to Um, take a little booklet that will help you understand a little bit more you're free to come and get one of those they'll be available at the front also seeing as it's Easter we'd love to give you an Easter gift there's a pack here with some other resources and information Um, I'm going to be hanging around at the end at the front and there's plenty of these to give away there's no strings attached we're not going to take your address or name or anything like that just come and grab one of these please Um, and there's some good, good reading for Easter Sunday and Easter Monday on there